there are restrictions. So like uh, drugs carry the death penalty. Like they will cane you and kill you <laughs> if you bring in drugs. They are super, super strict about that. Even things like chewing gum, right? Chewing gum is illegal here. Why? Because it's a communal society. It's like the individual doesn't matter as much as the community. Go look at New York. Like the streets look like Dalmatians because there's all these, you know, chewing gum all over the place. It's disgusting. So that's the rule. Because we live so tightly together, there's some things you can't do. But the way they've done it is, is pretty incredible. It's hard not to be impressed, to be honest. It comes with trade-offs. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Mr. Refills His Own Water Bottle, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to an old friend of mine near Eyal. He's not old, but I've known him a very long time. He is the author of two New York Times bestselling books, Hooked and Indistractable. I actually met him when we were both building Facebook games. Weird-ass world. This is a really interesting conversation where half of it was about where do you live in the world, how do you live in the world, and how Nir ended up in Singapore. And then the second half of the conversation is a really meaty discussion around habit formation, distractions, traction. So if you're interested in hearing more about the second half and you want to follow on, let me know at Noah Kagan on Twitter if it was something that you guys want to hear more from. If you want to learn more about Nir, check out at Nir Eyal or his website nearandfar.com. If you've ever wanted to learn about how to resist distraction and take back power over your time, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. Number one, the pros and cons of moving to Singapore or other countries. Two, why the opposite of distraction is traction. And three, how to boost your productivity by surfing the urge. That sounds perverted, but it's not. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener Thaclaw37. That's an awesome username. Or Thecla37. They left a review saying, Noah brings all the real. Yes, my first company's taglines was actually just keeping it real. True story. Thank you and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them. Quick product plug, check out AppSumo.com. It is the number one bestest place on the internet to buy tools to start or grow your online business. As well, if you are creating tools to help other entrepreneurs, go to AppSumo.com and sell your products. All right, we're here. Dude, where do we even begin? I know. Where do we begin, Noah? Yeah, there's so much that's happened in the past crazy year and a half year and a half or i was thinking like past 10 years 10 years last time i saw you was at south by which was a long time ago yeah it was a long time you were super swole i remember you were working out like crazy yeah i'm not i'm not crazy no not anymore just more fit now <laughs> yeah no you look great you look very fit dude you was, we don't age is it something in the in the falafels or in the bagels they just keep us young that's what it is. Yeah, we, we kind of are steady. And then when Jewish men get old, they get old real quick. We start getting the hair and the ears and the, the big paunch. Yeah, well, you're taking care of yourself. See, that's good. All right. So in the last 10 years, where do we even begin with it, man? Last 10 years? Yeah, you. well, I, I've been following your YouTube channel. So I think I know what, what's going on with you. What's not on the YouTube channel yet about your life? Oh, in the last 10 years, man? Oh, man. It's crazy. Almost. You're, are you in your 40s? Yeah, 43. I'm almost 40 next year. It's kind of tripping me out a little bit. Yeah, it's been a wild 10 years, man. I'm single now. It's been, um, dating has been an interesting journey. I think what blows my mind if I had to summarize the last 10 years is like, it's amazing how much we're still learning about ourselves. Mm. You kind of think you were like, all right, you're 30, you get to figure it out. There's like a card, you get this punch card. It's like, you're good to go. Yeah. And then you get to almost 40 and you're like, oh, there's new, there's a new version of me, like the next level. It's a beautiful thing, right? We're never done. I mean, you in particular, you're not only are you learning about yourself, but you're also learning all these amazing skills, right? You're like 
got your pilot's license and your your business is growing and you're learning how to do YouTube marketing now and you're like Someone you're like taking that. on some big challenges. By the way, isn't Thank flying you. the best? <laughs> it's funny you say that. Yesterday I almost I went flying, I almost puked. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, That's part of it. We were doing three we were doing three sixties and at the end of it I almost puked. And the time before that, my mom, I was flying and I asked my mom and she's like or my mom asked me, she's like, Hey, how's flying? And I was like, Oh, it's, she's like, Is it fun? I'm like, No. No. It's scary and it's nerve-wracking. <laughs> but then yesterday it was fun minus the almost puking part. Yeah. I was having a meeting with Jeremy who's our producer for the YouTube channel today and we did push-ups. We're like, "Hey, we're having a meeting." I'm like, "Hey, you want to do some push-ups?" He's like, "Yeah." And I'm doing push-ups with a guy I work with and I'm like, "This is my life. How cool is this?" <laughs> so that that's where and that's that's where I'm at today, man. What, what about you? I haven't I, I'd love to give updates. So, we're going this is going to go out either this week or next week. You know, where are you at in the world? How are you in Singapore? Yeah, so I've been in Singapore for about a year and a half. We love it here. It's a, it's a really have you been before? I had a really weird experience, so I'm curious to hear about yours. Yeah, so we we came here originally on a 90-day visa when COVID was just getting started. We were in Midtown Manhattan. That's where we we live. And when COVID got started and we saw how uh, the Trump administration was not taking it seriously, uh, it was the day that uh, Trump announced that it was he went on TV. Remember, he gave that national address that, hey, we got this under control. Don't worry, everybody. We're going to stop all trade with Europe. That was his solution to coronavirus. And uh, we were in midtown Manhattan. And I told my wife, I said, you, we, we got to get out of here. Like, this is going to be bad. And so March 11th, we hopped on a plane. We came here. You guys have kids? Yeah, we have a 12-year-old. So you took your 12-year-old out of school and then moved to... No, we, we homeschool. We've been homeschooling for the past six years. Oh, wild. Yeah. So we, we're pretty fortunate that we can be so mobile. So we just upped and left. You know, I work from home. Uh, Julie and I work together. Our daughter is homeschooled. So it's pretty easy. We just upped and left. And we thought we were just going to stay here for a little while. But then as things got crazy, we thought, you know, this is a pretty good place to be. Uh, we just kind of fell in love with it since we've been out here. So I've been doing a bunch of angel investing out here. It's a, an incredibly interesting, growing market for startups. It feels a lot like like when I first came out to the Valley, uh, circa like 2006, it has that same super optimistic vibe. A lot of amazing technologies in this area, in this region. You know, this region within a two-hour flight, uh, there are a billion people within this two-hour flight. And so it's a really interesting region of the world and very welcoming, super, super safe, <laughs> uh, virtually no crime, no homelessness. No graffiti, no uh, yeah, like no safety issues for my twelve-year-old daughter. So it's been it's been really great, dude. What a life! Because you you came <laughs> to Silicon Valley, and I was just reflecting. We we connected over the game stuff originally. Yeah, I think that's like thirteen, fourteen years ago. You were making games. I was making games. That's kind of where we crossed paths, I believe. Yeah, I think you you just left Mint, was it? Yeah, and I was doing the all the yeah. Facebook games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we were we were jamming on that, and then uh, and then you left for Austin. You left before I did. I stayed in the valley for a while. Yeah, well, I, I was just reflecting. Maybe Singapore is kind of like that as well, where it's like this new place that a lot of people are are moving to. Yes, but the border is closed, so they make it much harder to get here than they do Austin. They're uh, you can stay for a little while, but you know it's an island, and the government here is is very very strict. So there, a lot of the crypto people have moved over. It's definitely like. A lot of the big names like Balaji is here. The founder of Ethereum lives here. Edward Saverin, the one of you know, Facebook, one of the Facebook founders, lives here. Yeah, he's been there for a while. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are here. They also, it's also a huge tax haven because uh, the max income tax is 15 percent and zero capital gains. 
So all these crypto people are here to uh, to cash in. Did that impact your decision, or how did you evaluate the decision in other countries? No, no, we we didn't think we were going to live here, and I don't know if we're going to be here a hundred percent of the time. We're probably going to go back and forth between the states and here, but uh, it's a pretty great country. It is very much like living in the future. Like there are robots cleaning the streets, and uh, I mean, it is it is very much a surveillance state. There are cameras everywhere, although not as many cameras apparently per capita as New York, but uh, it's a very very tightly controlled place, which in some ways is fantastic because during a pandemic. It really pays off. <laughs> Dude, wild. How's like life out there for you? How did you say, hey, I want to go to this place and we're going to move everything in our lives and now we're going to stay here? And I think that's the part people are like, oh, I want to kind of go to Singapore. Oh, I want to kind of change. That's the part that I'm you know, kind of curious myself too. Hmm. Are you thinking about moving? I just got a house in Austin and it's been kind of fascinating. Just having a nicer place makes me enjoy Austin more. I was kind of surprised. Yeah. Totally. No, a nice, a nice place can definitely do that. I think that or like a nice woman or a nice man, you're like, okay, I'll stay here for that. Yeah. yeah. Or a nice community, right? Like at the end of the day, having a community is, is huge. If, if a few more friends of ours moved to Singapore, I think we would actually be like, this is it. This is, we're going to put down our roots. That's the only problem with it out here is that it's so far away. It's, I mean, we're literally, what are we, 13 hours apart here? We're on the other side of the planet. Well, I appreciate being flexible. I know the scheduling was kind of, it was on me that I was like, what hour are we doing this? So I'm, I appreciate you getting up a little early for that, man. No problem. I'm usually up around this time, so no worries at all. So Singapore, damn, man. Can you even say anything bad about it? Do they, do they tap the internet? Do they what? Do they tap the internet? Like, are you able to say anything negative? As far as I know, I mean, I'm, I don't know all the laws here, but you can't, there's a lot of things you can't post. So on social media, you're you're not allowed to post anything that's, Basically, you're not allowed to say anything publicly about attributes that people can't change. So if you say something about somebody's racial background or their religious beliefs, then that's that's prohibited. But you can't say that about the other way either, right? Like, so, you know, religious people can't say it about each other and non-religious people can't say it about religious people and religious people can't condemn non-religious people. So you can't like solicit uh, religion, you know, so like when I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and people saw the mezuzah on my door, uh, we got, you know, knocks on the door telling us we were going to go to hell unless we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Uh, you can't do that here. That's not allowed. So there definitely is restriction on speech. But because it's such a racially diverse country, a lot of these laws are in place to keep racial harmony. They used to have race riots in the 1960s. And that's all gone now. And there's a lot of like very, like you should research Singapore. There's a lot of things they, they've done. They just fixed all our problems in the States. They don't have here. <laughs> like, so they, for example, Lee Kuan Yew was the founding father of Singapore, uh, modern Singapore. And he really wanted to make sure that the racial groups got along together. There are three big ethnic groups here. And so he forced people to live uh, he said, we'll give you like highly subsidized public housing. So there's no homelessness here or vir- virtually none. And he said, but you have to, if you sell your apartment, you have to sell it to someone of the same ethnic group. So if, you, if you're Chinese, you have to sell it to another Chinese person. If you're Indian, you have to sell it to another Indian person. Because he wanted to keep the proportions the same. He didn't want ghettos. He didn't want like a part of town where all the Indian people live and the Chinese people live. He, he, did, he wanted people to intermingle. So, uh, so like the, the public housing here is insane. It's not like public housing that you think about in the States. It's incredible. Like anyone would in the States would die to have one of these apartments. They're, they're just like the, some of them are tourist attractions. They have these like hanging gardens and incredible pools. And I mean, some of the newer ones are really, really incredible. There's some older ones that they're tearing down, but the newer ones are incredible. And they're like almost free for the, <laughs> for the public. 
Um, they have this uh, racial harmony day where what you do every year is you dress up like other people's ethnicities. Well, I'm trying to think. I feel like in America, that, that's like asking for racism. That would never work in America. No, 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 no. That would not work. <laughs> but here, it's a big part of the culture to like promote racial harmony and understanding. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's always perfect, but it's pretty thoughtful. It's pretty amazing. What's the cost of living like? So everything is really cheap except for housing if you're not a citizen. If you're a citizen, housing is very affordable. But if you're not a citizen, then housing is like Manhattan prices. It's quite expensive. If you live in like the core, if you live in the, the outer area, it's not so bad. What's like an example? Like think of New York City prices, like $1,000 a square foot and up to buy. But to rent is actually not that bad. There's a lot of uh, foreign owners. There's actually like too many owners for renters. So renting is not bad. You can get like a two bedroom for maybe $4,000 US. So it's not crazy. But to buy though, it's pretty expensive? To buy is pretty expensive. Yeah, because a lot of uh, a lot of Chinese nationals park their money here. So that's kind of inflated the price. Any other surprising things for you about living in Singapore? I think people are like, never even cross their minds. I've got to share. So I went to Singapore. I have actually some good friends out there. When I first started businesses, like I started doing conferences, I met these guys from they were like, uh, exchange students at Stanford. And they've gone on to do like really cool things in Singapore. And they were very nice to fly me out there. And I just, I got weirded out. I got to Singapore and it was like too nice. And everything's too clean and it was too orderly. And it was like, the government's too good. And I was like, I need a little dirt. I need some graffiti. I needed, I was shocked how much I was surprised. And then I was like, felt almost too utopian. Like you think you want everything great. And then you kind of realize you need some scratches. It's been probably been 15 years since I was out there. And it was, they were nice to me. They were really nice to me. Uh, and I like Asian culture. I was just kind of surprised the, how much it kind of confused me maybe. Yeah. You know, would I live here for the rest of my life? Maybe, maybe not. I would definitely travel. So people, so the great thing about Singapore is, you know, it's a tiny island. It's five and a half million people. It's the size of New York City. But the virtue is that everything works. Like everything just works. Like government services, you go on a website, boop, boop, boop. You like, you're done. Uh, we got our Corona shots. Like I, I had an appointment at eight I was done by 8.02. Like all the trains run on time. The streets are spotless. Like it's incredibly efficient. Like everything is run so well. You wouldn't even believe. It's like, like literally, Noah, there are robots cleaning the streets here. Okay. <laughs> like that happens here. Like, you know, Westworld, you know, that yeah, show Westworld, they, they shot it here because it's so futuristic. Like the architecture and the, the lifestyle, it's incredibly futuristic. Now there isn't quite the the diversity of experiences, right? Like you don't have, you don't have as many crazies, let's say like we do in America, right? Like we have a lot of diversity and sometimes those people are like, you know, really on the fringes, but those were, that's where the creativity comes from, right? That's where like the, the village used to be. Now it's not, but it used to be like, you know, you had these bohemian areas and you don't have that as much here. What you do have is like Asia's version of that. So you have a lot of cultural mel melding between you know, people from India and Myanmar and, and Burma and Indonesia and Philippines. It is like a melting pot for, it's the only really ethnic melting pot of Asia. That's really, really cool. But uh, yeah, there are restrictions. So like uh, drugs carry the death penalty. Like they will cane you and kill you <laughs> if you bring in drugs. They are super, super strict about that. Even things like chewing gum, right? Chewing gum is illegal here. Why? Because it's a communal society. It's like the individual doesn't matter as much as the community. So, you know, they, it's a very small island. People live in these amazing 
like very dense buildings. They're beautiful. They're almost free. So the rule is, hey, you can't have chewing gum because guess what? People tend to spit it on the streets and it's disgusting. If you don't believe me, go look at New York. Like the streets look like uh, Dalmatians because there's all these, you know, chewing gum all over the place. It's disgusting. So that's the rule. Because we live so tightly together, there's some things you can't do. But the way they've done it is, is pretty incredible. It's hard not to be impressed, to be honest. It comes with trade-offs. Yeah, I think everything has the trade-offs. Yeah. Any other cool things? Then I, I am curious, how, how has it impacted your career moving there from New York? Well, thank, thank God we have the internet, right? Oh. So like, we can do stuff like this, right? <laughs> yeah, like this is, a, you know, it's science fiction, the fact that we can talk right now Real time. Uh, on other sides of the world yes. uh, with this video phone thing. This would have been like the craziest thing ever when we were kids. I think it's actually improved. It, it's been a real opportunity. There's so many startups here that I've invested in lately. And there's there's a discount for the region. So valuations are much, much cheaper. So you can you can actually do pretty well here because the company, you know, valuations here are, you know, two to three million dollars uh, versus in the States, you know, a seed round starts at 10, 15, 20. <laughs> yeah. I just invested in a, a non-alcoholic company and I didn't care about their valuation. I just wanted to be a part of it. And they sent me the term sheet. It was like almost $20 million. I was like, you guys just started. For a seed. It was fine. I just wanted to be a part of the experience. And I yeah. like, I love their products, but it was just kind of like, okay, okay. Wow. Have you stopped drinking? I have. I have. I stopped. Nice. Uh, it's been 69 days. Wow. <laughs> Not nice. Really. Congrats. Thank you, man. Thank you. I, I decided to stop when um, the CEO of AppSumo wanted to step out. I decided like when I come back to look for the next CEO, uh, I wanted to come with like a clean head and just like no distractions. You honestly just get used to it. We actually, I, we have a video coming out about what it's like to be like surprising things about being sober. I've never gone this long. Mm. Honestly, you just kind of get used to it. And it just becomes a norm. It almost, it's almost not as exciting as you think not. Yeah. But it's just yeah. like, there's a lot of these benefits that, that have come of it. Yeah. I haven't drank for uh, about a year and a half now, almost after we, we got here. The hardest thing though is, is like explaining it to people. Cause like people aren't, how do you tell people? What do you say? It's funny. I was, I talked about this in the video. I think that it's becoming more normal. Like you saying it, like you did it. I'm doing it a lot of it. There's all these non-alcoholic, like if you come to my fridge, like if you ever come to Austin, you can come over. There's so many non-alcoholic options. It's crazy. Mm, totally. And so I think in terms of telling people, a lot of times I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm not drinking tonight. I just don't want to explain it. Yeah. But I think there's a thing where in the future it's like cigarettes. It's like, oh, you smoke. Yeah. Drinking's still pretty fun though. There's definitely times where I'm like, oh, it would have been pretty cool to drink right now. Yeah, I just, uh, what did it for me, I started wearing this aura ring and uh, yeah. I had a night where we went to a dinner party and I had like maybe three drinks, like nothing too crazy, but seeing how it impacts my sleep was just a game changer. Like it, you know, I was doing okay, okay, okay. And then you just this crash in terms of like all the metrics that matter. I was like, I don't, I don't need this stuff. And then when I started digging into it, it really is poison, right? <laughs> like all this stuff about like, oh, wine's good for you. Wine does this. It's basically all manufactured by the French Vineyard Association. Like none of it's true. It's <laughs> the FDA will tell you that like alcohol is not good for you in any amount. It is, you know, we, we freak out about organic this and pesticides that. And meanwhile, we like dump this chemical into our body. That's a known carcinogen. We just like drink it, you know, because we're so convinced it's what we need for social lubrication. It is kind of wild that we're cautious on one side and not on the other side. Totally. Totally. Oh, yeah. I gotta have organic blueberries and then no, no, let me do right. some Coke this weekend. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk shop. Cause I definitely, there's a lot that you've been exploring in the past 10 years. Just taking a step back, like the three high level or two high level sections is like, how did you transition? You were kind of, you were similar to me. We're similar in this. We're both Jewish. We're both very handsome, all that stuff, but you're a tech CEO. 
And you've kind of transitioned to like um, a thought leader, author. I don't, I don't even know what you would put on your yeah, whatever author. you want to put it on. Yeah. And so I guess I'm just curious about that career transition. I think a lot of people are curious about that as well. So when we first met, I was running a company that I started uh, right out of business school. And um, it was in the virtual goods space, which at the time was completely ludicrous. Now it's a multi-billion dollar industry. But we were, I started that company with some friends of mine at, uh, at Stanford. It was incredibly stressful. Like there's a big difference between a company where the market pulls you versus where you are pushing the market. My first company, I started a solar energy business, completely different story. The market was pulling us, like people wanted it. And we sold that company and got us on our feet financially. That was fantastic. It felt amazing. With the, the virtual goods company, it was a different story. Like from day one, we were pushing, pushing, pushing. It was it was just a different feeling. And like, you, you can't really describe it unless you've been at one of these companies. Like you can, you know what it's like, right? When you were at Facebook, when you would at Mint, like the market, you couldn't get the stuff out the door quick enough. Not to do anything. Right? And so with my second company, it was a slog. It was not fun. Uh, we raised a bunch of money. We like, you know, we did all, we, we checked all the boxes, but at ultimately uh, Facebook screwed us essentially. Like we were building on their platform, not their fault. They were protecting their business interests. But one day they basically said, nope, no more branded virtual goods. And so uh, we had to find something else. We, we, we couldn't keep doing it. And we tried, but basically it was an aqua hire. Uh, we sold to a company that then was rolled up into Yahoo, but nothing spectacular. We turned the money to investors, but nothing great. Even though at first we were we were doing all right. Like at first we got to profitability, things were great. But then with the Facebook change, it, it really kind of knocked us for a loop. And so then after that, I took some time off after that company was acquired. And I just like a friend told me, a friend who had sold her company, she said like, just just chill for a while. Like, just don't do anything. Don't start another company. I, you know, I always had like a ton of ideas. I always thought I was going to start another company. She said, just relax. Like, just think for a bit. And I remember asking myself, like, I'm not religious, but I remember like saying a little prayer, like, please, Lord, help me find a job I like. Like, help me find my chosen profession that like I will want to do. Just on a whim, I just started writing because, you know, I, I was a journalism major in, in college and I always liked writing, but like never wanted to make a career of it. And I got very disillusioned doing like working. I worked at the New York Times and CBS and I got very disillusioned with like centralized media uh, for a number of reasons. But I just never wanted to like go into journalism. But then I just started blogging. I really enjoyed it. It's just for me. I didn't care if anybody read it. I was using Blogger. Remember Blogger back in the day? I still use Blogger, dude. Yeah. Okay. You do? Wow. You're the last one. <laughs> I know. I know. So I just started writing. And um, and then uh, after a while, like I got some emails from like TechCrunch. You know, TechCrunch used to be a big deal back in the day. Like TechCrunch would reach out to me and say, hey, can we publish one of your articles? And like a bunch of folks started wanting to syndicate my work. And that kind of became more. And I just you know, what I was doing in my free time for fun, people thought, you know, was interesting enough to syndicate. And then I got a call from my professor at Stanford, a, a guy by the name of Baba Shiv, who called me up and said, I read your article on these ideas around uh, habit forming products. I really like it. What do you think about doing a course together? I said, sure. So he kind of gave me carte blanche. He said, you know, you design the course, let me know where you want me to teach. And we designed this course together. And then I started teaching at the, the Stanford Graduate School of Business for several years. And then moved over to the Hasselplatner Institute of Design, also at Stanford. And um, that then became the first version of my book of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And so it was very organic. Like I just, you know, kept I kept doing what I call follow my curiosity. Like whatever was interesting to me that I wanted to write about, that I wanted to explore, writing is how I learn. Like writing is a great way for me to think. 
So I just kept doing that. And that kind of became my career. Not intentionally. How do you think, because I have a friend who I was hanging out with Sunday and we were doing life 3.0, just kind of a brainstorm dump for him to like, how is he exploring next? Like, I guess, how would you recommend for others if they're not enjoying their jobs or they're not sure what they want to do? There's different phases uh, where you have different degrees of freedom, right? Like if you're just getting started and you're working like, you know, paycheck to paycheck, you just don't have that freedom, right? You got to keep working. The good news is that for most people, uh, you can accumulate enough wealth so that at some point, you know, maybe not in your 20s, but if you, you know, if you keep your expenses low, if you work a reasonable job, you can definitely level up these days in ways you never could before. My 12-year-old daughter is taking this. Have you seen this course that Google has for basically free where they teach you data science and they say, like, you don't need a degree. You don't need anything. If you finish this data science course, we'll hire you. And some of these jobs are six-figure jobs, right? These are some serious gigs. Uh, my 12-year-old daughter is doing this program. And, you know, for an adult, they say it takes you about six months. So, you know, we're going to let her do it as long as she wants. But just an example of like anybody could do, if you have an internet connection, you can level up your talents and, and your paycheck. So I would say at first, like if you, you just got to like build the nest egg so that the second phase, which is where, you know, my story comes into play, where I could say for the, you know, in my life, like, okay, what do I actually want to do? Because at first you don't really have a choice. You kind of just have to like make money. But once you have a choice and say, hey, I have a, you know, a year or two of freedom. I have a, a, a little nest egg where I can take a year off and decide actually what I want to do with myself. What I didn't realize, I didn't know you could be an author. I didn't know you could be a thought leader, right? Like, so I, I just started experimenting. I started following my curiosity. And it turns out, like, this is a great profession. I love what I do, right? Like, Hooked has sold half a million copies. Indistractable, my second book, just passed half a million copies. Uh, you know, before Corona, I used to travel the world and give talks and do consulting. Now I'm, I do a lot of angel investing. That's actually, like, where I actually make money. It's not on the books. It's on the investing opportunities. But it just kind of, you know, I think that rule of following your curiosity has always been something that's guided me. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't know. I'm just thinking about for other people. Mostly, it's also cool that your daughter now is going to have a job at like 13, 14, making more than most people. Yeah, that's what, that's what she's going for. She loves it. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I guess just different chapters in this book of life. Yeah. Yeah. What's your, how's your book coming along? You're publishing a book soon too. I am. Um, I think I'm more just, I'm really excited about the experience. I think that's what's interesting about the book. I don't know how you're, and, and, I, and I appreciate you reaching out to kind of be like, yo, tell me about it. It was just like during when coronavirus hit pretty quickly in the first few weeks, I was like feeling really good. I was a little sad when it was ending. Or when it seems like it's ending. I was just, <laughs> I don't know. Like it felt like it brought people close together. It felt like it brought out more creativity than I've ever seen. It brought out community. It brought out like what's important, all these great things. And I, and I felt good about that. And so that led me to kind of put more content out. And then that led to be like, hey, there's, this book is another medium of that. So the book so far, I mean, it put, it put spent a year on the proposal. I don't know how that experience was for you. I didn't write a proposal for... Uh, really? What'd you do? So I self-published Hooked. I just put it on Amazon because I didn't know. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't know how you were supposed to do this whole book thing. <laughs> like, um, so I just put it on Amazon and self-published it. And then after it started getting reviews, that's when I got a call from an agent that said, hey, why did you self-publish your book? Like, let's go sell it for real. And then we took it off the market and sold it to Portfolio. That was one of, one of my questions is, how do you sell a million copies of a book? How do you sell a million copies? <laughs> you, you get incredibly lucky. A million copies is like in all of last year, I just saw this stat. One book sold a million copies in a year. I don't even know what that book was. I didn't see the title, but one book what? in America no. sold a million copies. Yes, it's incredibly rare air. Look, no, people don't really read 
nonfiction. <laughs> they buy nonfiction. They don't really read it. Like I can't tell you how many people like, you know, uh, you know, indistractable, right? It took me five years to write this book. And this is the secret to fighting distraction. Like I wrote this book for me. I spent five years reading academic journals. The book is full of 30 pages of peer reviewed studies. Like it's very science backed. These techniques really do work. Uh, it's not this mumbo jumbo of, oh, it worked for me. It's going to work for you. No, no, no. Like I spent a ton of time in the academic libraries. It's all right here. Right. And I still get calls from people. You know, I do these office hours every week. Uh, where people can call me to talk about anything. Like as long as they read the book, they can, you know, I give them 15 minutes each and we can talk about any questions they have. And I still get people who I can tell haven't really read the book. <laughs> it drives me crazy. It's going to drive you crazy too. You'll see like people will ask you questions, be like, yeah, didn't you read my book? It's in the book, but that's okay. That's why you have to write for you. Don't write for, to sell a million copies. That's, that's a really bad goal. I have to tell you, like making a New York times bestseller list, selling a million copies, stupid goal. It's not in your control. What is in your control is making a book that benefits you. Like I wrote Hooked because I wanted to know how do you build habit-forming products. I saw Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp. There was something about them I didn't know what. What was the deeper psychology? How do I do that? I wrote it because I, I wanted to start another company to build a habit-forming product. That's why I wrote it. Indistractable. I was crazy distracted, right? I wasn't getting things done. I wasn't taking care of my body. I wasn't fully present in relationships. I, was, I wasn't able to focus at work. I wanted to fix this for myself and the other books out there that told me, oh, stop using technology. Technology is evil. It's stupid. Like that's not true. So I wanted a practical book that I could actually use in my own life. So that's why I wrote it. I definitely want to break out some of the, the takeaways and things so people can buy your book and not read it. Uh, <laughs> well, ideally, they read at least the first few pages. <laughs> it's funny. I talked to James Clear, I don't know, maybe last year yeah. about you know book writing and book putting it together. He's like, just put everything in the front. And don't worry about the rest of it. Just get three things that they can really think about. Like I've started reading in this book that, uh, today called The Artist's Way. And it's how to be creative if you're not a creative. Kind of like how I feel about myself. Yeah. Like I feel like I'm kind of creative, but I'd like, I'm not like the photographer or like the artsy or the fashion. And so far in the book, it sounds like there's like two things. It's morning writing or something they call it. It's something where every morning you write three pages. doesn't matter. You just have to write. And then the other thing is about dates, like artist dates. I haven't gotten that far. But that was like literally in the first like 20 pages now. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I made that mistake with, uh, with indistractable. I think some of the best stuff is actually in the back. Like the most, some of the most important sections are how do you build an indistractable company? Super, super important, right? How do you raise indistractable kids? That's my favorite section of the book. At least it changed my life and my, my parenting style more than anything else. Um, how to have an indistractable relationship with people. And you're right. So like, I don't write books like that, but most business books, you know, you've read most business books, nonfiction books, you read the introduction, you're like, okay, I got it. This could have been a blog post. I freaking hate those books. So I don't write those kind of books. Like I want a book that people actually consume. Now, what I will say, audiobook has changed the game. Okay. For Hooked, like I would say uh, from what last time I checked about 75% of the sales were print with Indistractable the opposite. 75% of the sales are audiobooks. So audio has changed the game. I think we've created a lot more readers because there are a lot more listeners out there. That's been fantastic. And read, read your own book, by the way. One good piece of advice. When you publish, don't get a professional narrator. Do your own narration. I made that mistake on the first book. How did you know that was a mistake? Because I got people saying, hey, why isn't Neo doing the narration on the reviews? <laughs> so I re-recorded it. Oh, did you? That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I went back into the studio and re-recorded it. I want to get Matthew McConaughey. That's my goal. I just think getting Matthew McConaughey to do anything would be pretty damn cool if I could actually pull that off. Yeah. 
Yeah, but do this one yourself. I think people right. are going to want you. Like people are going to buy the book largely because they like you and they, they want to hear your voice. Well, a breakdown. So I want to get into some of the, because you, you had some meaty nuggets right there, yeah. which I want to get into in a second. But how do, how do you even sell half a million, which is you've done for both your books? Yeah. So like you, first of all, like write a good book. <laughs> that's the most important thing. Like write a book that people actually want to share with others. Um, that's super, super important. Um, that, you know, what I like in a book, when I read a great nonfiction book, I want to have at least one mindgasm, right? Like one thing that I'm like, oh, I, wow, I didn't see the world that way before. And there aren't that many books that do that. Like when I read Zero to One, definitely did that. That was so good. Right. There's like, there's these big concepts of like, you know, competitions for losers, right? You can say it, you can share it, you can understand it. Monopolies are great. Right. So like taking those lessons and having at least one thing that you can remember, if the reader can't remember it, they can't share it. And if they can't share it, they can't promote your book for you. So for me, for both of my books, um, they both have like a four part model right? That if you can just remember these four steps, then that's going to help you. You can always refer back to the book and go deeper, but at least if you can paint that picture in your brain, then you can solve the problem when you need it. I like that. So one of the big things with Indistractable is the difference between traction and distraction. So there's this model in the book that explains what is distraction, right? Like starting with what, what is this even? Like people think, oh, distraction is, you know, the pings and dings on my phone. No, not really. When you think about what is the what distraction is, the best way to understand what it is is to understand what it is not. What's the opposite of distraction? Most people think the opposite of distraction is focus, right? I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But actually, if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. So both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, that means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Okay, so distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action we take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards your goals, towards what you do with intent, towards your values, helps you become the kind of person you want to become. Everything else is a distraction. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be traction or distraction. So I'm not part of this like chicken little, you know, tech critic, uh, social dilemma type crowd that says, oh, technology is melting your brain. Technology is horrible stupid. It's not scientific. It's totally ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with using YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or anything as long as you use it on your schedule and according to your values. Now it's traction. There's nothing wrong with it as long as you do it on your schedule and your values. Distraction, on the other hand, many people think, oh, distraction is only, you know, Facebook and Twitter and things like that. No. The number one source of distraction is when people do something they think they should be doing and really it's not what they intend to do. So for example, for years, I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, here I am at work. I'm going to get started. I'm going to do this important thing that I've been delaying on, that I've been procrastinating. I'm going to get going. Here I go. But first, let me just check some email. Let me just scroll that Slack channel. Let me do those easy things on my to-do list real quick. And we can talk about why to-do lists are probably the worst thing you can do for your personal productivity. Let me start doing those things so I can feel productive. Meanwhile, I'm not doing the thing that I said I was going to do with my time. So that's the much more dangerous form of distraction is the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work that you have to do to move your life and career forward. So that dichotomy is like a picture. Not People won't explain it that way, but people could say, hey, you know, there's this thing, traction and distraction. 
Like that's a conversation starter, right? Like, hey, when people complain about, oh, my kids are addicted to technology and how I can't get anything done and, you know, Twitter this and Facebook that, people can say, hey, actually, wait a second. You know what? I read this book and here's what it explained. It's actually not that bad. As long as you make time for it, you can keep using these things. So you have that, you have the to-do list. And I, I want to dive into that afterwards. How do you get people to talk about that? How did you get people to hear about the book? How did you get people to find out about it? And I think this applies to you know a lot of people who are creating content or products that are out there. It's hard to put lipstick on a pig. Like a lot of people want to know, it sounds like your line of question is like, how do I market it? Yes. And I agree with the pig thing. I think that's, that's a great point to bring up. The book needs to market itself, right? You're like, you know why James Clear so, sold that many copies? I'm in the book, actually. He mentioned some of my work. It's awesome. He's a good friend of mine. It's a great book. It's a really good book. <laughs> like indistractable. I get emails every day. It's one of the most rewarding things about being an author. I get emails every day from people who say this changed my life, right? I complain about the few people who I, I can tell didn't read the book. You know, I hear from those people, but the vast majority of people are super happy with it. They actually have improved their lives. And so when something changes your life, you want to tell other people about it, right? Like if you go on a diet and you lose a bunch of weight, you want to, you want to show people, you want to, you know, you want to tell people what's changed. And so that's the number one thing is that like, you got to write a good book. Right? You got to write a book that is surprising in some way. It can't just be like, oh, here's my career and here's lessons I learned because 99% of those lessons, you know, people already know or somebody else has written. You have to write something different, something, a new perspective that's actually helpful. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, in large part, this kind of stuff, if it's useful, people do tend to share it. Did you do anything else outside of it? Because I mean, I get, I do get that. There is still ads, there's still press, there's still interviews, there's still other things. None of that stuff helps. Other than, other than I would say podcasts. I think podcasts do actually help. Uh, at least the super, super, super big ones. The small ones don't really move any books. But like the New York Times covered my book, the Wall Street Journal reviewed my book. I had all kinds of like traditional press. I don't think it moved anything. <laughs> I think podcasts definitely help, uh, like the, the super big ones. But other than that, Oh, I will say like my newsletter, you know, so I have 125,000 blog subscribers. And so, but that, that's not something you can do overnight. I've been doing that for what, nine years now, people subscribing and just liking my writing, you know, I'm sure that was a good chunk of the people who initially bought the book. Was there any specific podcasts? I'm selfishly asking. Yeah, I can, I can make some introductions for you. Yeah. Or just what, yeah. I was just curious for people that are out there because maybe they'll should listen to those podcasts too. Oh yeah, there's. I mean, there's you know the usual suspects. You know, there's uh, there's a bunch of you know. If you go to the top ten in business on uh, Apple iTunes, you'll kind of see the the usual crowds. Yeah, because we started. So my book's coming. I think in about two years. So we every Tuesday we do a two year list. So it's like, who can we help now that in two years we might want to ask? Like, hey, we're gonna have my book coming out in two years. Is there anything I can help you now from now until then? Uh, so you might like me and, and our team a little bit to want to be able to promote the book or have us on your show or whatnot. Yeah. So what I like about being an author is that it's not a zero sum game. Uh, a lot of businesses are right. Like if you're if you're an ex business and your competitor is doing the same exact thing, then you're like mortal enemies, right? If they get a client, you lost a client. With writing, it's not the case, right? Like James and I are really good friends because if someone buys Atomic Habits, they're going to love Indistractable. So like they don't just buy one book, they, they buy all our books and, you know, they buy them in time. I always try and help other authors, right? So on my blog, I post this Q&A for authors every once in a while. If I read a book and I really like it, then I invite the author on to, to do this Q&A. So happy to do that for you as well. Thanks, Assuming you wrote a good book. I'm sure you will. The hard part. The hard part. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, helping, helping other authors get the word out about their books and, and you know, what they think is important. You know, books are so... I know we both have this rule about like never be stingy with books because like 
the cost benefit of a book for freaking fifteen dollars, you get someone's brain dump <laughs> that they have spent years on. It's the highest ROI amount of knowledge you could ever get if it's a good book, right? There's some books out there that are clearly ghost written that suck, but if you get a book that's well written, it's well well worth the investment. So that's something we can always do for each other. Oh, I appreciate that, and I'm gonna definitely hit you up on that, and definitely gonna mention your book and tell people. I don't think I've written distractible. I've read hooked. I think it's, you know, what's funny. It's a title that I feel like I don't feel like that distracted. So it didn't really compel me to feel like to read it, but it's actually interesting. Now that I say it out loud, I was on a, I was hanging out with this friend of mine about a month ago and she read digital minimalism, which I think is like a similar, same topic, different, just different flavor. But she was like, Oh, that changed everything. So I did actually read the first half of that. This is like getting down the weeds, but why is digital minimalism more of a more compelling I think the titles, actually, it's interesting because the title of Indistractable, I don't feel like I'm that distracted in mm, general. Like I feel like I'm relatively focused and I accomplish most of my goals. But digital minimalism is like, oh, right, what am I doing digitally that I can now adjust? It felt more specific mm. with what I'm actually doing. And it, it had, it made me like unfollow people on Twitter. I unfollowed everyone on Instagram, unfollowed everyone on uh, YouTube. It's made me more mindful of how I'm online. The guy, I would mindlessly go to Twitter and I'm just like, why am I doing this all the time? Yeah, so indistractable, it's not just about tech, right? That was really important to me that, you know, Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. This is not a new problem. So I wanted to make the book about distraction in general. Like sometimes, you know, work is a distraction. If you say, hey, I want to be with my family or my friends, and now you're working, well, work is a distraction. Or if you're at work and now you're on social media, well, that's a distraction. If you're, you know, if you said that you're going to, you know, watch TV and now you're doing something else, like everything can be a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time. And so I wanted to make the book much more broad than just tech products. And I think, frankly, like a lot of the advice out there around, you know, digital detox or digital minimalism is like anti-tech. And I actually disagree. Like, I think we can absolutely use tons of tech. Tech is wonderful. I love tech if we use it the right way, right? Like people, you know, people need a, a an instruction manual for how to use their blender, but we don't sit and think about how we're going to use these incredible tech tools. And so what I wanted to do is to help people think about, you know, their values, starting with how do you actually want to spend your time? And any way you want to spend your time is fine, right? If you want to play video games all day, I got no problem with that. As long as that's what you say you want to do with your time in advance, right? As long as yeah. you do that with intent, as opposed to what most people do. So this is where we talk, you know, we talked about traction and distraction. What we didn't talk about are the internal and external triggers, right? So external triggers are all these pings and dings in your outside environment. This is what people tend to blame for getting distracted. They say, oh, my cell phone rang, this happened, that, you know, my kids, my boss. Those are external triggers. But that turns out to be only 10% of the reason we get distracted. What's the other 90%? The other 90% are internal triggers. And this for me was a huge revelation. That we tend to think that distractions start from outside, but actually the vast majority of distraction begins from within. These are internal triggers. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is the number one source of distraction. So all this other stuff doesn't matter, right? Like all the other tips and tricks and gurus and life hacks, none of that stuff works unless we understand that time management is pain management, right? This is a really important point. That 90% of the time we get distracted is because we are looking to escape an uncomfortable sensation with a distraction. Take my mind off of that feeling, and that's where we get distracted. That's where we go off track. So that's step number one is mastering the internal triggers. Well, the two things that, that triggered for me, one, it was thinking about Andrew Chen. He's, you know Andrew, and he's one of my you know, very yeah. close friends. 
hanging out with him. And he has all these things, like he has a safe for his phone and he's got a special phone just so that when he's working, he's not distracted. And it's like, you think someone like him at his level, he's now, you know, really well known and very top for the venture investment game. It's like, he's still distracted. So it's, you know, it's interesting different ways that people approach, but I think you have a, a great point, which is what are you trying to accomplish? And as long you know, are you moving towards where you want to go? The thing that, that was interesting for me about that you said in my own life is I did notice that I'm not feeling good at myself. It sounds so strange. As I look at some of my bank accounts as a way of not feeling some things. So I have actually my therapist called it out like a few weeks ago. He's like, he said he felt sad for me. And I was like, it is kind of sad. And I was good. It was like, oh, I, why am I feeling bad? What's actually happening? And then just trying to explore that feeling versus like looking at my crypto wallet or some fucking stupid thing like that. So that was actually nice. So tell me more. So you look at your bank account for what? what why do you do that? I think it's self-worth in some moments where it's just like, I don't think that's yeah. a great measurement, right? I think it's like, it's a nice external one, but I don't think it's a great internal one. So I've just been not doing it. Like I still want to check my finances time to time, but it's being mindful of the moment. I think it's either boredom and maybe I'm feeling lonely or I want to feel a little better about myself. And it's a little bump. Yeah. And whether it's, you know, the numbers in your bank account or it's the number of YouTube views or Facebook likes or whatever, we have to understand that all human behavior, all human behavior stems from a desire to escape discomfort. This is a big deal because most people think that human behavior is about carrots and sticks, right? The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's not true. It's all about the desire to escape discomfort. Everything we do. So fundamentally, like if we find that we are doing good behaviors, bad behaviors, behaviors that align with our values or don't align with our values, we have to ask ourselves, what discomfort are we escaping? And then do you have recommendations how to, do you just face the discomfort? What, what's in the book? No, no, no. There's uh, dozens of different techniques you can use. You don't have to go see a psychotherapist necessarily. Not that there's anything wrong with it. But what I wanted to do is give people techniques they could use right off the bat so that when they feel this emotional discomfort, they know what to do with it. They have arrows in their quiver that they can take out and say like, ah, I see what's going on here. I'm feeling a lack of self-worth. I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling bored. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling stressed. What do I do? Do I take a, a drink? Do I scroll? Do I turn on the TV? Do I check my bank account? Do I look at my subscriber numbers to make myself feel good so that I don't have to face this discomfort? Or do I have some kind of tool at my disposal that I can use that leads me towards traction rather than distraction? Hold on, so what are some of the quivers, man? Like you can't you can't tease it like that. Nah, we only have four minutes left here. Now we don't have six. Time. <laughs> Depends on the time zone. I do have one other question, but yeah, I am cur- well. Two other questions, but like, what is like an example of something that? Sure. You know, next time I'm like not feeling good about myself, instead of checking the bank account, what would you recommend? Yeah. So this is so these techniques. By the way, I didn't just invent. I hate these self help books. Is oh, I invented this amazing technique. You know, bravo! I need to see the peer reviewed studies. I want to see the science. So one technique that I've adopted uh, almost every day in my life is called the 10-minute rule. And this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's been around for decades. Have you heard about the 10-minute rule? Um, don't think so. so. So here's how it works. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any temptation, but not right now. You see, what most people do when it comes to t- temptation, distraction, they use abstinence, right? Just say no. And that turns out to backfire. That when you tell yourself, don't do something, okay, don't smoke the cigarette, don't eat the chocolate cake, don't check Facebook, this makes you want it more. Why? It's like pulling on a rubber band. When you pull on a rubber band, you pull, 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 and then when you let go, the rubber band doesn't go where it started. No, it ricochets across the room. Why? Because, so what's the metaphor here? So when you tell yourself, don't do it, 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 when you finally do it, 
that relief of having to tell yourself no longer no feels good. And so you're registering in the brain. The brain is recording that the way to get satisfaction from telling yourself not to do something is to go ahead and do it. And so you're doing nothing but reinforcing the very behavior you're trying to quit. So instead of telling yourself no, tell yourself not yet. Okay. So you set what's called a 10 minute rule. So many times when I write, okay, writing is really hard. All right. Writing will never become a habit. The definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. Writing is the antithesis of a habit. It requires tons of conscious thought. It's really hard to do. All I want to do when I'm writing is go Google something or check email or check stock prices or sports scores, anything but the writing because it's hard. So what do I do? I take out my phone. I say, set a timer for 10 minutes. Okay. I put the phone down and now all I have to do is either get back to the writing or do what's called surf the urge. Surfing the urge is when we realize that these sensations, these uncomfortable emotions, boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, they are like waves. They crest and then they subside. But that's not what it feels like in the moment. In the moment, it feels like I'm always going to feel this. That's not true. If you can just sit with that sensation for 10 minutes, and I teach you how to do this, if you can sit with it, what you will find is that nine times out of 10, by the time that timer goes off, you'll be right back at the task at hand. And so this is incredibly effective if you're on a diet, you're trying to not eat that chocolate cake or trying to stop smoking that cigarette or stop checking Facebook all the time or email or whatever, by using this tool, it's a wonderful way to master these internal triggers. And there's dozens of other techniques in the book that you can use. It's funny. I had a thing on uh, yesterday night, uh, someone texted and they're like, come over. And I was like, so tempted. And then I, I didn't do a 10 minute rule, but I gave, and I was like, ready to go. And it was not a, it's not a healthy thing to do. And it was just like, about after 10 minutes, I was like, no, is this really what you want to do? I was like, no. So yeah, you're, that was it's a good point. I'll, I'll think about that. Yeah, it's a good one. There's, there's many others. The idea here is that there's no one silver bullet, right? Like there's no, there's no one magic cure. There's four steps to becoming indistractable. We just talked about the tip of the iceberg with mastering the internal triggers. It's also about making time for traction, deciding in advance how you want to spend your time, right? Very simple thing that is absolutely essential. Synchronizing with the stakeholders in your life, right? Like this is why to-do lists are so horrible. We talk about that in the book. Hacking back the external triggers. Like this is all the practical stuff around, you know, removing all those pings and dings. Not that hard to do. Very few people actually take the time to do it. And then finally, preventing distraction with pacts, which is where you make a pre-commitment so that as the last line of defense, you're prevented from getting distracted. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I've noticed that our company at AppSumo where the things that were intended to be productive have actually become counterproductive. And I'm part of the problem. Where like Slack or some of the messaging stuff, you just message and you just message and you get a response. And I've started noticing like, wow, I'm really taking them away from whatever they're already planning to do. And not only am I, now tens if not a hundred people are doing it across the board all day long. Yeah. So how is anyone getting anything meaningful done? So I've been doing aggregating, just any question I want to ask someone, unless it's urgent, just aggregate it. And then I do it on our one-on-ones and I'm more productive. I feel like they're more productive. It's been interesting to kind of observe these. What's a major thing? What's kind of a minor thing? It's funny you mentioned Slack because Slack is this technology that people always mention is so distracting. And there's a profile in the book of Slack. Slack is one of the companies I, I went to and knocked on their door and said, hey, people say your technology is super distracting. And I actually went to like go visit them and see, you know, they should be the most distracted company on earth if, if the technology is the source of the problem. And that's not what I found that part of what makes them an indistractable company, you know, they have in their headquarters in bright pink letters, it says in neon, it says, work hard and go home. It's part of their company ethos, right? And so at Slack, they don't actually get 
distracted because they portray these qualities, which I talk about in the book, about how to build an indistractable workplace. And one of the key features is that leadership needs to display what it means to be indistractable because culture is like water. It flows downhill. So as a leader or as a parent, for example, you have to become indistractable yourself if you want your employees, your, uh, your colleagues, your kids to be indistractable as well. That's a great point. Because if you're the one, like, I've got to knock it a bit. At our company, we're experimenting with no meetings week, which I think is like a cool, like extreme theory. But there's actually a lot of meetings that are really helpful and necessary. That now by just saying we're not doing any meetings kind of, uh, I think, removes some, some effectiveness and productivity. And so I think there's just a lot to be thinking about. Obviously, there's pieces in your book for people. I am curious. I want to hear in, in wrapping up uh, about no to-do list because I, I love a good to-do list. I wish I could, but I have another call here. <laughs> it's the top of the hour. So we check out Indistractable. It's also at nearandfar.com. I saw that you wrote the article. I bookmarked the article. Yeah. Let's, uh, we can, happy to schedule another time if you want. We can go more deep into the, into the material. I think you'd really enjoy the book. I know you're busy, but uh, if you have time. I'm not that busy. Well, I'm relatively not that busy. Oh, okay. Well, now there's no excuse. You should really read the book. I think you'd really, really actually dig it uh, or listen to it at least. Uh, get past the title because uh, I think as a leader, it's, or at least that chapter on how to build an indistractable workplace, I think you'd really dig it. All right, man, I got to run. I have another call waiting for me here, but it was so good seeing it you. It was funny because I, I think like the end of this thing was all the meat. It was like the whole beginning was nice. I know, I know. We were talking too much about Singapore. Who gives a shit? <laughs> all right, man, <laughs> good seeing you. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. That is a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. If you want to hear more from Nier and you want to follow an episode, tweet at me at Noah Kane and let me know. Definitely go buy Nier's books, Hooked and Indistractable, and check out Nier at Nier Yall on Twitter, as well as nearandfar.com is his website, and his sign up for his newsletter. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go do a digital detox together. And before you go, tweet at me, at Noah Kagan, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I know you already have, so you can skip this part to some really fun things at the end. But youtube.com slash okdork, our team puts out three amazing videos to help you. Yes, yes, you in your earlobes on your business journey. So that's youtube.com slash okdork. Also, if you're a creator or you want to be a creator, go to appsumo.com slash sell. It is brand new. It's doing insanely well, helping people promote their books, software, and courses to millions of other entrepreneurs that are out there. That's appsumo.com slash sell. Finally, shout out to the amazing team. I can't do this without y'all. Jason at podcasttech.com for doing all the edits on these episodes. Mitchell, Jeremy, Hubert, Jonathan, Sasa, Cam, and Jenna, the dork team. Thanks for all the magic y'all do. And finally, shout out to Caitlin, who made an amazing sumo cake. Check her out on Instagram. It's Kate Bakes Cakes ATX. It looked phenomenal and it tasted even better. Thank you so much, as well as amazing job to the whole team for Sumo Day. You can all check that out at appsumo.com. What a great way to honor our customers, a.k.a. Sumolings, a.k.a. Underdogs, a.k.a. you. Have a stupendous day. What's your favorite brand of water? I like Fiji, but I, I, I straight up, I fill it up in the tap because the bottle looks so good.